1 Corinthians. We're going through this particular book and we have uh, seen how Paul at the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians gives thanks for this church. Even though this church has a number of problems, he has gratitude in his heart to God because of their calling that they are truly saved. And secondly, we saw last week though one of the major problems that they have is factions and divisions and we know that that is not a part of God's will that a church be divided in and of itself. And today comes a little bit more of an academic academic or philosophical approach in terms of what we would learn about the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of man that Paul writes here regarding the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we look at verse 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the word of God reads this way. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. Through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Father, once again we ask that you would enlighten our minds and hearts, grant to us understanding through your Spirit. We pray, God, that you would fill us with knowledge, that we might know you, that we might live in the light of who you are, in the truth, in the wisdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. The subject that Paul addresses here this morning affects us today just as it affected the church back then in that day and age. And it is the subject of the wisdom of man or humanistic wisdom, which is often called philosophy. The word philosophy itself comes from the word philosophia, literally meaning love of wisdom. Now, the Greeks were very much in love with wisdom. At the time of this writing, the Greeks had some up to 50 50 philosophical parties or 50 movements. All of them had some type of viewpoint on man's origin or how economics ought to function had various perspectives on society and education and a whole host of subjects. And they all had various paradigms, all perspectives on how one is to view the world. 
And about 500 years before Christ, historically, as I give you a profile of philosophy as it has developed over the years, about 500 years before Christ, there came philosophers such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle who considered how you define Knowledge, how you define wisdom, how you determine if something is true or not true. And for some 2,000 years between the time 500 years before Christ up until some 1,500 years, there was always the presupposition or the understanding that knowledge is somehow understood through nature. That nature somehow conveys to us what we know and there can be truth that would be known. Some naturalistic explanation that can be understood in the mind. But as human philosophy would develop over the years, in the 17th century at the dawn of the Enlightenment period, people like René Descartes or people like John Locke began to delve more deeply into a aspect of philosophy known as empiricism the study of how do we know what we know because this is part of what Paul speaks of here in human knowledge or human wisdom Rene Descartes would be what would be called a rationalist a person who would say we know what we know by means of logic. We know what we know by rational explanation. It has to be understood, has to be rationalistic, has to be deduced by our mind's eye. John Locke would say, on the other hand, no, we know what we know through experience, what we feel. It is much more of an empiricist. And various philosophers would come along sometimes between the two, like Immanuel Kant, who would combine the two ideas in a combination. And then there would be others who would propose different ways of looking at life, whether it was by logic or experience. People such as Hegel or Kierkegaard or Nietzsche or Marx or Henry James. And it's important to understand this because the idea of, for example, rationalism as a philosophy affected how some scholars would look at the Bible. Would look at the Bible. They said that Moses couldn't have possibly written the first five books of the Bible. It was written by a group of scholars who wrote it after the exile of Israel. It was written by a group of scholars. In fact, the most challenging thing to the rationalists would be Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the account of creationism. Because during the time of rationalism, when it would become more popular, alongside of that, it was a greater acceptance of evolution, Darwinism. It was accepted as a philosophy that affected how people who studied the Bible began to interject various ways of the world coming into being, positing ideas such as progressive creationism, or what is known as theistic evolution. Sometimes people would try to somehow incorporate evolution and creationism into one philosophy. Modernism is a philosophy that came along later on after rationalism that believed that the scientific method was the only reliable method. 
And modernism discounted supernaturalism and it treated reason as supreme. It treated uh, the, the supernatural as something that was false, a figment of somebody's imagination. And these presuppositions in modernism fueled what we call Darwinism. And it spawned a number of philosophies such as Marxism and fascism, socialism, communism, and theological liberalism. You say, why do I need to even know this? Where modernism was affected by rationalism. Well, it's because today it has even affected even modern day scholars. Those who would talk about the Bible or teach the Bible. You go and take a public class at the University of Washington or other public universities, what would they teach? You'll find that many, if not most, are taught from a presupposition. The supernatural is not the biblical worldview or it is not propagated as the biblical as, as the worldview there. No, they are taught from a humanistic, modernist worldview where it is a scientific method that is purported to be true. That is why I never recommend anyone taking a Bible class from a non-Christian secular institution. And someone asks me, should I take this class on the introduction to the New Testament? And, and I tell them, no, I don't think that it's such a good idea. Because oftentimes what they'll do is they'll discount all of the supernatural events there, saying that it is an accommodation to the superstitious thought of the people back then. And that Moses didn't really write the first five books of the Bible. It was written by a redactor. And you don't really know all of the things that are true there. But we would assume that many of them are. But there are good stories and good morals. And the creation account, of course, accommodated the people who had a superstitious worldview back then. That is some of the philosophy that is purported to be true by teachers in secular institutions. After rationalism came out of the Enlightenment and modernism, we come to a period that is a postmodern. Postmodernism is a tendency to dismiss, to dismiss the possibility of absolute truth, that truth cannot be known objectively with certainty. Because why? Subjectivity and experientialism is so great and such a high value. The idea of tolerance of everyone's view because everyone's view, they develop truth within how they feel. Truth is therefore relative or contextual rather than absolute and transcultural. Like the New Yorker magazine, which had a little cartoon where a little boy was writing on the blackboard, doing arithmetic, and he says seven times five equals 75. And he says to his astonished teacher, quote, it may be wrong, but it's how I feel. And that would be postmodern truth. And then there are other philosophies that have swept into modern day thinking. In the Futurist magazine just last year, an article came out regarding Immortality 2.0, and it reads this way, quote, A new movement has emerged from California's Silicon Valley. It's a combination of philosophy, faith, and science known as transhumanism. 
An article in the Futurist magazine describes transhumanism as a radical life extension and life expansion, unquote. The devoted to the movement, quote, perceive the human body as a work in progress. They believe that, quote, evolution took humanity this far and only technology will take humanity farther. As for sickness, aging and death, adherents call all three unnecessary hindrances that we have the right and responsibility to overcome. Our bodies, frail and unpredictable, are just Another problem to solve, unquote. The goal of the World Transhumanist Association is to transcend all human limitations. They believe that the body is a machine, the brain a computer. And with advancing technology, all of these things, man, can be, quote unquote, upgraded. Transhumanists are convinced one day artificial limbs will become more efficient than real limbs. Our brains will become vastly superior too. Researchers have theorized Einstein's brain had no gap between the frontal lobes. Transhumanists hope to use technology in such a way that his advantage can be engineered for everyone. And you probably would guess that they are strong supporters of Chironics where people are frozen such that someday someone might be able to revive them and give them new life. And so this particular movement, this particular movement, the article continues on and it says the overwhelming majority of transhumanists are atheists. Still, Tyler Emerson, a leader in the transhumanist movement, says, quote, for those of us who don't believe in God, this is sort of a religion. Another one adds, quote, every myth on this planet tells people that the purpose of life is death. It rationalizes death. It helps them deal with it. Every temple is a tomb and every tomb is a temple. If you have a set of technologies that radically changes the meaning of death, and that has repercussions for religion. These questions touch on our very humanity, unquote. All of these philosophies, whether it is rationalism or modernism or postmodernism or transhumanism or whatever it might be, seek to undermine the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures come across with a supernaturalistic worldview that includes God, that includes God and calls us to having a biblical worldview. That is the difference between human philosophy or the love of wisdom and the wisdom of God. And the scriptures in Colossians 2.8 gives us a warning. Gives us a warning as is printed on the front of your bulletin. For it says, see to it that no one takes you captive. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men. According to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. So the warning is here. Why? Because the wisdom of people is incomparable and comparable to the greatness of God. And that was what Paul addresses here in this passage. And so we look in verse 18 and 19 when Paul speaks of the wisdom of God or the word of Christ or the word of the cross. For it says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Here it is a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. To some, the wisdom of, the, of God is foolishness. Foolishness. It is the same word from which we get the word moron. It is the same word from which we understand. It means foolish or moronic or idiotic or backwards or nonsense. And to some people, that is what the word of the cross is. To some people, that is what the gospel is. To some people, when you share with them the gospel, it sounds completely ludicrous. It is completely foolish. And if you were to place yourself, perhaps in the viewpoint of somebody who isn't a Christian, and they were to look at the gospel, perhaps they might have this perspective. They might say, well, first of all, you're telling me there is a God in this universe? And that God had a son? Why didn't he have more kids? Why did he only have one son? And that son who was a God became a human being? A human being who suffered humiliation? God himself, you're saying, was tortured and then put to death? God himself, whose ministry only lasted three years, who died on two bars of wood someplace out in the Middle East? And this person's name was Jesus, who had a perfect life, you say? who had no sin at all, who spoke everything perfectly, did everything perfectly, thought everything perfectly, had no actions that were wrong at all. And you're telling me that if someone were to be able to get into heaven, have eternal life, they don't need to do a single thing. Just repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. Accept Him as their Savior and somehow all your sins will be forgiven at that time. Is that what you're saying? That you are dependent upon this event that happened some 2,000 years ago for your eternal destiny and what's going to happen to you? Is that what you're saying? That message to the unregenerate, to the person who is prideful, is foolishness. That is the gospel message based upon the truth of this book. And you can understand how some people would look at that. To those who are perishing, it says the word of Christ or the word of the cross is foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God because we experience that power. We know what it is to have joy when life is falling apart. We know what it is to see our prayers answered. We know what it is not only through experience because of what God has done in our life, but because the Word of God says it is. And we trust and it is by faith. For we know that man's wisdom is also a step of faith, just as it is a calling to faith to follow God. And everyone is on one of two paths. The wide road, the Bible says, that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. To us who are being saved, the text says. And that little phrase simply means that we're growing in our salvation. We're being sanctified. And that final day of redemption will come when we will ultimately be saved. And Paul uses this illustration in verse 19. To illustrate his point, this quotation, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Isaiah quoted this in Isaiah 29:14, And he quoted this in the context of what was happening. He was given this prophecy in 2 Kings chapter 19. When Isaiah heard this, this prophecy was given to Isaiah back 
thousands of years ago in the time of Israel, when Israel was, had a king named Hezekiah, who was king of Jerusalem. But he wasn't king of the world, no. In fact, Israel wasn't the reigning world power at that time. The reigning world power at the time of the giving of this prophecy was Assyria. And Assyria had a king named Sennacherib. And Assyria was a very violent and vicious military power that used psychological warfare, used intimidation, used the might of their army in order to crush nation after nation. And they had had a number of victories when they came and besieged Jerusalem. They came and besieged Jerusalem and surrounded the city with 185,000 soldiers. That is a massive number of people. Hezekiah was in the city. He was king of Jerusalem. And human wisdom would have said, Hezekiah, Assyria is a formidable enemy. Hezekiah... You had better wave your white flag now if you want to have any chance of living. Because you know what? A lot of other nations have already just capitulated because of the overwhelming military might and the power of Assyria. We're outmanned. We're outgunned. We're surrounded. We have no place to go. And we cannot win. Hezekiah, you'd better surrender now if you want to live at all. And that is what human wisdom would say. Anybody looking at the circumstance would say, that's not such a bad idea. We need to consider that. Human wisdom always and only looks at the outward circumstances. Human wisdom only looks at the physical limitations. What is the size of my army? How much military might do I have? What can I do to win? How much power do I have? How much influence do I have? How much money do I have? How much can I do in my own strength? But God in this prophecy gives His own plan. A plan where human limitations, human credit, human wisdom, human strength never will win the battle. So God told the prophet Isaiah here in this passage, It is not by them... Where is the clever? Where is the wisdom of the wise? I will set it aside. And in one day they went to sleep at night. And an angel of God came, it says in 2 Kings 19, and slew 185,000 soldiers outside of the gates of Jerusalem. It wasn't because of Judah's army. It wasn't because of their prowess or their ingenuity. It was because of God. And when we rely, you see, on God's wisdom, we have peace. The question is, what do you trust in? When you look at life, you have your problems that come up in life. Maybe they're financial problems. Maybe they're health issues. Maybe they're employment issues. Maybe something or another is troubling you. Whom do you trust in? What is your confidence in? Do you trust in what you see? What you can do? What is your power, how much you can afford, what you can handle, your energy, your strength? I'll tell you, when you do so, what comes in is fear, is worry, is anxiety. Because when it is outside of your control, you have anxiety or fear. That is the problem when you trust in yourself. 
But to trust in God is to have perfect peace. That is what Isaiah says. He who keeps his mind stayed on thee, he will keep him in perfect peace. Just like God saved Israel in the slang of 185,000 soldiers. Which side would you stand on? And therein lies a contrast in what is given next in verse 20, 21. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, in the same vein as the people of Hezekiah's time, and the people of Hezekiah's predicament, people would look at the gospel and think, boy, it would be sure foolish. That foolish king, by his own ingenuity, thinks that God is going to save him from that mighty army that I see out there. Being saved, some people would say, is foolish if you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything, no work, no effort, no ingenuity, no human credit. It rails against our intuition. And that is why all of the religions of the world differ from Christianity. Because all of the religions in the world require that you do something to earn your salvation. All of the religions of the world, you have to pray X number of times. You have to go see somebody to confess your sin. You have to sell so many things. You have to work for the church and so on and so forth. You build up all of your good deeds and then you might get into heaven. Christianity and the Bible says, no, you receive the grace of God. And God works in your life and changes your heart to do those good deeds. But you don't have to do any of those in order to earn your salvation. Because today, we have people, even ourselves, who are skeptics of a free lunch. Nothing's for free. What's the hitch? What's the fine print? You buy something, what's wrong with it? Why is it so cheap? And we hesitate because we don't want to be obligated to something that doesn't have some sort of hitch in which we do something. But salvation is free. It costs nothing. It is given for free. And it gives you true freedom from guilt. It gives you true freedom to do what is right. It gives you true freedom. Yet God in His grace continues to cause us to grow. So rhetorically, Paul writes, So where is the wise folks? Where are the scribes? Where are the Stoics? Where are the philosophers? Where are those who are the cerebral types? Even those who would follow human philosophy today, when you study psychology, you find that many of them end up in a cycle of thinking in which at the end of the line, the end of their thinking, there is no hope. There is no hope to life. There is no future. There is no eternal life. There's nothing to look forward to, nothing to live for besides yourself and altruistic good deeds that might make yourself feel better. That is what we call religion rather than Christianity, which is a relationship with God. All religions require, as I mentioned, that you do something versus a faith in God, which requires just faith. And a repentant heart. One humanist that I read in an address to the Unitarian Universalist congregation wrote this, quote, I wince when I hear others use the word God, spirit, sacred, the human soul, and so forth. These words are undefinable and meaningless to me and other humanists. 
And we consider their use in any non-critical context to be an affront to human reason. We call this using theistic language a common problem in many religions. You see, to them, atheism is only reasonable. There's no room for theism. There's no room for supernaturalism. For many, there's very little place for faith, for trust in God. Because our world trusts in its military might. Our world trusts in its money, its power, its influence, what it can do for itself. Yet God calls us to continually, continually remember to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And not lean on our own understanding. And in all our ways acknowledge Him. And He will make our path straight in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That is the message. That is the message. To trust in the wisdom of God. The message of Christ crucified. Verse 22. For indeed, it says, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. You know, Jesus had been preaching for a while. In the beginning of his ministry, in the book of Matthew, he begins by preaching and teaching. And his teaching was unlike that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then as we progress through the book, he began to do miracles and miracles and healings in order to confirm the message that he had just preached. At the end of the miracles, some scribes and Pharisees came to him in Matthew chapter 12. And they said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus, in Matthew 12:39, he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to them but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And ultimately he displayed his deity and his resurrection by raising, being raised from the dead. But they still did not believe. The text says the Jews were seeking for a miracle. They always sought for a sign. Remember the temptation of Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness? When Jesus was tempted by Satan, Satan took him to a high pinnacle on the temple. And he said, throw yourself down and the angels will come and scoop you up. Boy, won't the people really be amazed. They'll follow you then if you'll just show that to them. Why? Because the Jews were always looking for a sign that would show that he was the Messiah. That would be a big thing. They were always looking for a sign. Just as they asked Jesus for a sign there. They were looking for somebody who would be their savior as a military and a political savior. Who would take them out from underneath the oppression of the Romans. Yet, he didn't want to give them a sign. Not until his resurrection. And this says here too, the Greeks search for wisdom. The Greeks search for wisdom. And they search for wisdom in what could be rationally and philosophically understood. As I shared with you, there were some up to 50 or so philosophical viewpoints that, was, that were swimming around Greece and their philosophy and their philosophical thinking. To them though, as a generality... Then it would be hard for them to wrap their minds around the idea that God would come in the form of a man. Why? Because, you see, to them, the physical was sinful. The spiritual was holy and good. 
They had a dichotomy in their idealistic, in their, in their philosophy. They sort of had a duality in their thinking. So how could a person or how could a God who was holy come and become a person who was physical and sinful? That was not understood by them. That was not understood by Greek philosophers. And that is why it says this gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to the Gentile. The word of God saves. It is the wisdom of God that displays the greatness of God in verse 25. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here it says in verse 25, Paul writes. Paul writes hypothetically as if God could have a foolishness or God could have a weakness, which he doesn't. But if God did have a foolish idea or weakness in God's, whatever his thinking might be, it would still be heads and tails far beyond what man could ever dream up or think. And when you think about it, our greatest thought that the limited mind that we have could not even comprehend to the greatest of extent of who God is or his thoughts. Because oftentimes people think, God must think like I think. God must view things as I think. And I think God should be like this. God owes me an explanation as to why he does this or why I do that or or why this certain thing happened. In Greek mythology, the Greeks thought that the gods were much like them. Their gods in Greek mythology, those of you who read about them, would be deceptive, would be moody, would be wishy-washy, unpredictable. Greek gods would be vengeful, inconsistent, scheming against one another. That's how the Greek gods were. Their gods were reflective of people. But God in His Word reminds us in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is so much unlike us. His perspective, His purpose, His aim. So today, you'll find that there are a lot of philosophies, a lot of movements, a lot of worldviews. People who look at the world a certain way. New approaches to ministry. New approaches to the ways of doing things. And you go down to your local Christian bookstore, you'll have something that somebody has written that is new. You'll go to your local Christian conference or your local mission trip and you'll find that somebody has a new paradigm of how to do things. Some sort of new advice about parenting or money or work or counseling. Almost every aspect of life. Someone will have come up with something. Some of these ideas aren't bad. Some of them are helpful. Many of them are practical. Some are useful. But others... They undermine a biblical worldview. They undermine a biblical philosophy of ministry, elevating our pride, feeding our ego. They are oftentimes men focused on what I can do to make myself better for me. I can feel better about me rather than God focused. 
How can I make this so that God would be more honored, so that God would be more glorified? Many times, many of these philosophies don't have as their goal the glory of God. So don't buy into some new method or new way of managing life. But ask yourself, is it biblical? Does it reflect the wisdom of God? Or is it simply appealing to my selfishness, my own self-centeredness, my desire? And that is the question that we ought to answer today. For whatever we come to something that is new, because the wisdom of God far transcends the wisdom of people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so often today, the world espouses things, whether it is in our schools, our universities, or even our, the church. I pray, Father, many of these things are oftentimes subtle, and they appeal, O oh God, to our own sinful desires. I pray, Father, that we might be discerning that we might not do things simply because they're easy, they're pragmatic, they appeal to our own desires. But Father, may we ask, is this consistent with your wisdom that you desire us have in your word? In Jesus' name, amen.